There's uh, an interesting thing that happens in the playoffs in hockey. I know some of you guys aren't hockey people, but you just have to bear with me. Um, typically in the playoffs, it's a seven game series, best of seven, right? So the first team to win four games. And uh, often you hear the coaches on both sides, uh, both teams talking about this kind of game plan that they have for their team. And, and, and they all often talk about it's gonna be a long series and they've got this kind of long-term plan. And they, you know, if we do these things over the length of this series, we think we can win the series. And often it's things like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna hit their defensemen and put pressure on them. And, and we're gonna get under the skin of their stars or we're gonna have more hits than the other team. But we think if we do this over the long-term, we'll get benefit and we'll win the series. But what's interesting is by the time you get to the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh game, if it's a deciding game, uh, if one team's losing by a goal and there's about a minute and a half left, the team that's losing, their coach will call a timeout. And you'll pull the team together and you'll give them a game plan. But do you know at that moment, the coach isn't saying, hey, if we can, if we can just get the most hits here, guys, Hey, if we can get under the skin of their stars. Hey, if we, can, if we can just put some pressure on their defensemen. They don't talk like that. There's only one thing that matters in that moment, isn't it? We need to score a goal. We need to take this to overtime so that we can win the game and keep our, our chances alive. See, in that moment, it's not that the other things were unimportant. It just happens to be that they weren't the most important. And the end... The end, it brings clarity to what's most important. And often, the closer we are to the end, the more clarity we're given. I want to welcome you to our uh, end game series. Um, Jesus, at the end of his ministry with his disciples, after three years of spending time with them, he does this. And he'd been talking about all kinds of things, but he kind of takes a time out. He says, let me tell you what's most important. Here's what the end is going to be like. And Jesus describes, maybe not in all the detail we'd like, because we have all kinds of interest, right? There's all kinds of fascination, even if you're not a religious person. It's like, how's the world going to end? When's the world going to end? And Jesus doesn't give us all the details of how or when. He does give us some in Matthew chapter 24, and you can read about that. But what he does is he says, actually, in light of the fact that there is going to be an end, and you know this, each of us are going to face our end. And Jesus says, here's what's most important. In light of the end, here's what the kingdom of God will be like at the end. And he shares three stories or three parables to give us some insight as to how we're to live. If you remember a couple weeks ago, the first parable Jesus told was about these 10 virgins who were waiting for the uh, bridegroom. He was a long time in coming and five of the virgins were wives and five of them were foolish and the foolish ones didn't bring extra oil. And because they had to wait so long, which is a picture of Jesus's time between when he left to go back to heaven and his return, it's been so long uh, they happen to be unwise, and we were encouraged in that to be wise watchers, be those who are prepared for the end and ready for the end. And then last week, if you remember, Jesus talks about this master who had great wealth, and he leaves, and he gives some wealth to these three servants. And uh, he's a long time in returning, right? The master's a long time in returning. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like when the master returns, when I return at the end. And he encourages us to use what's been given to us to do something with it, to invest it. And there was two things we talked about. 
that we've been given the gospel, which is salvation, and we're to do something with the gospel, we're to do something with salvation, that we have life in Jesus, both to allow it to affect our lives, but then to flow uh, through us to others and share the gospel with others, investing the gospel. The other thing is that those of us who have received Jesus as our savior, he has also gifted us by his spirit. And you have a unique gift. And there's this call for us to use, not squander or bury, but to use the gift we've been given, not for our own good, but for the good of others and the glory of God. And and Jesus says, here's what you're to be doing in the in-between time so that you're ready and prepared so that you're wise watchers. Well, as Jesus gets to his next teaching, the third parable, it's the least parable-like out of the three. It's almost like Jesus kind of just goes to straight teaching. And undoubtedly, if you've heard this passage before, or if this is your first time in church, you've not read the Bible before, this is some of the most uh, uh, fearsome teaching Jesus gives. It brings up all kinds of fear when we hear this. And I I guarantee you at some point in the message today, you're going to start this kind of anxiety and fear rising in you. But I want you to know, Jesus did not speak this parable to simply scare you. In fact, Jesus did not just speak of the end to make us scared. He spoke about the end so that we would be prepared. If you simply leave today being scared, you've missed, I think, the heart of Jesus and you've missed my heart. Jesus does not want you only to be scared, but to allow that to change, to affect your life so that you are prepared. It's kind of like If Jesus just wanted us to be scared, he would have said something like this, the end is coming, adios, right? It's like, oh shoot, what do we do, right? That would make us afraid. Or think of, you know, maybe you you had a friend or someone that said, hey, you know what? In three years, there's gonna be this massive natural disaster. That would make us afraid. But if that same person said, oh, but if you do these three things, you'll be safe and saved. Oh, Okay, I don't have to fear that then, right? I just got to prepare. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't say these things to scare us. He says, hey, I am returning. Here's what the kingdom of heaven will be like when I return. But here's some things you can do so you're prepared. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. And remember, you're going to feel some anxiety. You might feel a little bit of scared, uh, scaredness in this message, but don't let it stop there, okay? Here's what Jesus says regarding the end. Starting verse 31, he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. When Jesus says, when the son of man, he's referring to himself. He says, I'm leaving, but one day the son of man, that's me, I'm gonna return. And when I return, I'm coming back as king. And this is a picture of Jesus we don't often have in our minds. Because the greatest celebration we have in our calendar year is what? Christmas? Maybe you said your birthday. No. (laughs) The world doesn't celebrate your birthday. It celebrates Jesus' birthday. Christmas is our greatest celebration. And Christmas, we celebrate the, the coming of Jesus as a humble baby, weak, in a stable. Jesus came not as this this power, he came as a as a baby. And we get this picture of this humble, meek person, and it's so true of Jesus. But what is also equally as true is Jesus is king. That means he is ruler of all things. 
And when he comes back, he will come as king. He will sit on his throne and all of humanity will do what people do with kings. They will have to give account. Here's what Jesus says. All the nations, not just one or two, he is king of all people. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate they will give account. He will separate people from one uh, another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This was common practice in their day. They all understood this. Some were sheep, some were goats. And this is what Jesus describes the end will be like. There will be this separation of people. He goes on and says, he, that's the king, will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Sheep were the preferable animal and sheep or the right was the, the place of honor. So there will be people that will be put in the place of honor on the kings on Jesus' right side and those who will be put on the place of dishonor on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, these are the sheep, the place of honor, come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus next is gonna talk about in a few verses about the, the fact that these are the righteous ones. Here he describes them as the blessed ones. You are the righteous, you're the blessed ones. Come, you are honored, come and take your inheritance. And do you know what the inheritance is? He actually tells us, it's the kingdom, the kingdom. And this kingdom, Jesus says, was not an afterthought of God. It's not that God created the world and then humanity messed it up. He's like, ah, oh, shoot, I got to create a kingdom for my people to live in. No, no, no. This kingdom was prepared at creation, since creation. It was not an afterthought. In fact, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, including you and I, were created to live in this kingdom. This is where you were meant to live. And Adam and Eve lived in this kingdom and then through sin, they messed it up and they got kicked out of the kingdom. They got kicked out of the garden. They got kicked out of paradise. And as uh, uh, those who identify with the first Adam, because we too are human, now born in sin, the sin that's passed on from Adam and Eve all the way through humanity, we too have been kicked out of the kingdom, kicked out of paradise. But that's not the end of the story. When Jesus came, he came as the second and better Adam, the perfect Adam. And as we celebrated today in baptism, these people who said, my identity is now in Jesus. I identify with him in death to sin and resurrection with Christ. They have taken on the identity of Christ and thus they have stepped into the kingdom, a kingdom that God prepared at creation. It was where you were meant to live. This is the good news. So who are these blessed people and, and why is it that they're invited into the kingdom? Why are they called righteous? Well, give us some description and Jesus goes on and this is where the anxiety starts to raise, okay? So let me read it for you. For the king will say, Jesus, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And suddenly the anxiety starts to race. Because <laughs> Jesus lists six things and questions start to arise. If these are the blessed ones and these are the righteous ones, do we have to do all six to gain salvation? 
but I don't really like strangers. I'm kind of introverted. Do I have to like, and I don't really like prisons. I don't really want to go to prison and visit people there. And, and how often, like, do I have to do each one once? And if I do each one once, then I'm in the kingdom? Or do I have to do it seven times? When does, how do you decide? And anxiety starts to raise in us. But as Jesus, as Jesus says this, those questions are actually not the right question. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But what I wanna draw attention to is all six of these areas were essential needs in the first century. Jesus said, I was hungry, without food you die. It's essential need. I was thirsty, without food or drink, water you die. I was a stranger. In the first century, they didn't have hotels like we have today. There's a story in the Old Testament about a man who went to a city and he sat in the, in, in the, in the circle, a uh, square of the town and waited for someone to invite him in because there was nowhere to lay his head. It was an essential need to have shelter. Obviously clothes, essential needs, sickness, you need to be, well, you were in prison, there's a relational need, we ha- need a connection with people. Jesus describes six essential needs. He said, we need these for life. And if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be like me, practical discipleship, and the word discipleship simply means a follower, someone who takes, uh, follows the lead of someone else. If you're going to be my disciple, practical discipleship includes caring for the needs of those we come across. You cannot be a practical disciple of Jesus and never help someone with their need. Jesus said, this is what it looks like because this is what I have done. See, faith inside looks like caring for those outside. You cannot separate religion and your love. Say, I believe and yet not practice any love. Jesus ties the two together. Well, Jesus continues, and we have the response of the righteous. And the righteous will answer him. And I think this is so interesting. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? It's interesting. Their response is surprise. We don't remember. And remember those questions that I mentioned earlier that bring up anxiety? Like how many of these do we have to do to get saved? And how often do just once? But by their response, we're actually asking the wrong question. See, if the righteous had been declared righteous because of what they had done by doing these things, they would have calculated. And they would not have been surprised. Yes, of course, we know we're welcomed into the kingdom because we calculated all the good things we've done and our righteous works have brought us into the kingdom. But they did not because they were not declared righteous by their works. Rather, because they were righteous, they entered into good works. Let me say it this way. Caring for the needs of others is not a means to salvation, but rather it is evidence of our salvation that's already here. And this is why they were surprised Because if there's a list you have to keep, if there's a certain amount of good works you have to do, you can calculate that. And when you get to heaven, you'll say, I'm already in. 
Look what I've done. But they were surprised because they never did these good works and they were not declared righteous because of them. They simply did them because they'd already been made righteous by Jesus. See, none of us, none of us can work our way into God's good books. We can't do enough good things. We can't go to enough prisons. You can't have enough strangers over. You can't feed enough sick people to earn your way to God. It is only through what Jesus has done on the cross for your sins and for mine that we are declared righteous, that we are declared his. But as we are declared his, Jesus invites us and says, come follow me. And that means come live like me. The way we define discipleship at Mount Olive here is discipleship or following Jesus is growing to be someone who lives like Jesus would live. And this impacts our actions. The aim of discipleship is that our actions become like Jesus's actions. Our identity is his. Our mission is his. This actually spells aim. Easy to remember, right? The aim of discipleship is to become like Jesus in our behavior. This is what they had done. They simply cared for those who had need because guess what? Your heavenly father cares for those who, has, who have need. They became like their savior and their master, Jesus. To become like Jesus in identity, this is what the baptismal candidates declared. My identity is in Christ. I'm a new creation because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. And my mission, the purpose of my life, what I live for is to see others become devoted followers of Jesus, to see them take on the faith that I've taken on. This is the mission of Jesus. Jesus says, this is what I'm calling you to be, my disciples. So the, the righteous ones ask, when did we do this? We don't remember. And here's the king's response. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus the king, Jesus who we will all give account of our lives to one day, identifies with the least. Jesus the king identifies with those who are the bottom, those who are the outcasts, those who are poor. So much so that Jesus the king says, when you care for the needs of others that come across your path, you're actually caring for me. Which tells us this, you cannot love God I cannot love God, and you and I cannot serve God apart from loving and serving others. You cannot separate your faith from your care and concern and compassion for the human that sits next to you, regardless of what they believe or think or the ideology. Whatever you did for the least, the outcast, you have done for me. Practical discipleship includes this isn't all it is, but it most definitely includes caring for the needs of those we come across because faith on the outside works its way out to caring for those outside. Now, we may think, okay, Jesus, that was clear. Thank you. We're ready for the end. But Jesus is like, ah, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. And so he continues and he says this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And I know in our Western society today, uh, we have a lot of pushback against this idea of hell. Is Jesus talking about hell? 
it seems to be. I mean, he calls it an eternal fire, whatever that is. The other thing we push back against, is there really a devil? Is the devil really a person? Is he actually in existence? And Jesus seemed to believe that there was an enemy of our souls called the devil. And Jesus says that as there was a kingdom prepared since creation for humanity to live in, there's also been a place prepared. It wasn't an afterthought. It was prepared, but it was not prepared for humanity. You and I were not created for hell. This was a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But according to Jesus, from this verse, although hell was not prepared, this eternal fire was not prepared for humanity, it is the destination of some. It's the devil. And he goes on to say, for, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. For this group of people, they were defined simply by living for themselves. But look at their response. It's identical to the righteous ones. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. We don't remember seeing you that way, which is the exact same response the righteous gave. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I have a hard time with this verse. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around eternal punishment. How is that possible? But as I read this verse, it's interesting. In our Western society today, and many Christians, many people of faith would say, I don't know if this is, is this really real? It's interesting. Few of us wrestle with the idea of eternal life. But we wrestle with the idea of eternal punishment. But what's interesting, Jesus uses the exact same adjective for both life and punishment. So if we're going to accept the one, logic dictates the other comes with it as well. And this is something we have to wrestle with. The other, I think, startling piece observation from this parable and I don't know how to make sense of this fully. But oftentimes when it comes to hell, we'll say things, whether we're religious or non-religious, we'll say things like, surely God wouldn't send me to hell because I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not that bad of a gal. And usually when we say things like this, our reasoning would go something like this. I mean, I haven't like killed anyone. I haven't, you know, abused anyone physically, at least severely. I haven't slept with anyone who didn't want to sleep with me. I, like, I haven't done any, and you list your list of bad things. I'm not that bad of a person. But do you know that Jesus also calls sin talking about someone else behind their back negatively? Oh. And cheating and lying? Oh. But here's the most interesting thing. The people who get sent to hell were not sent there because of the bad things they'd done in this parable. It was actually for good things they chose not to do. 
which just raises the bar even higher. It's no wonder the brother of Jesus would write later, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, it's sin for them. If this is the definition of sin, we're all hopeless. Can any of us make our way into heaven? Can any of us fill the standard of righteousness, of right living that God demands? And the answer is no. Which is why Jesus tells this parable because he's not saying this is how you get into heaven. The only way we are saved, and Paul comes along and says this later in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 is, you have been saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God so no one can boast. You can't say, look, I made it. It is by grace. Grace is a gift, a free gift you cannot earn. It's unmerited. And he says, God has done something for you in the person of Jesus. He has taken your debt of sin and he paid for it. And you can receive this gift. Do you know how you receive it? Not by works. You receive it through the hands of faith. Simply trusting God. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, verse nine. He says, anyone who confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Doesn't matter if you looked after people or didn't, right? Didn't matter. That's not how you're saved. But for those who have stepped into relationship, their lives are changed because practical discipleship will change how you view others. And because of what God has done for you by taking care of your essential need of giving you life when you were headed for death. He says, now give that to others. And this is not how you earn salvation, but it most definitely is evidence that you are saved. Faith on the inside looks like caring for those on the outside. You don't have to be afraid of the end. Jesus didn't speak this word so that we would simply be filled with fear and leave with fear. No, he did say there could be disaster in the future, but there's something you can do about it now. This is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. So don't be afraid of the end. Simply be saved and then allow the evidence of your salvation to be displayed in your life. Allow it to work out in you as you come across need and step into filling the void that others have. So I wanna ask you, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, what are the need in your sphere? Maybe there's need and, and God's been prompting you to step in and it's gonna be inconvenient. It's not gonna be all that comfortable. I have a sneaky suspicion when your heavenly father sent Jesus to fill your need Jesus leaving heaven wasn't comfortable, nor was it convenient, but he stepped in. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.